What's up, everyone? I hope you are doing fantastic today. This is Rafael Garcia here on Sunday, August 30th, and I'm here with Shawan Humes and a special guest. But before we jump into that, we are here for another edition of the MMA Ratings Interview Series. This is episode number five, I think. That's a, It's a running thing that I never know what episode number we're on. I have no idea, but I think this is episode five, but that's neither here nor there. I'm here with Shawan. Y'all know him from our weekly show that we do every Tuesday, talking about mixed martial arts, combat sports, and everything in between. But I'm going to throw it to Schwan to basically let everybody know how he's doing, as we usually do. But he has a special guest that we want to um, interview, and he'll be introducing him today as well. So, Schwan, let everybody know how you're doing. Oh, I'm all right. As usual, I'm uh, out and about. My kids had another tournament. It was supposed to be yesterday. They moved it to Sunday. So they are playing, and I told them, I got to miss this game because I got to get this uh, – interviewing because we ha- have a very important guest uh mr steve kim the uh, best boxing journalist analyst anything you can do that has to do with covering boxing he it is the bar that everybody else is trying to meet in that context so uh steve say hello to the fans well sure first of all thank you i'm very flattered by that that uh, you guys would introduce me as such and uh I'm glad that we were able to do this. I know we've had some issues connecting, but I think uh, this particular Sunday is a perfect time. And uh, guys, I'm ready to chop it up, man. I'm really glad to be here with you two. Well, fantastic. Um, so, Schwan, I'm going to kind of turn it over to you, but I'm going to get things kicked off first. And I just want to ask you, Steve, um, what's your history in, in boxing? Give us an overview on how you really got started in the industry. Okay, well, this is – I. This is kind of a long, convoluted story. I will give you the cliff notes. I probably grew up as the last generation in America that grew up watching boxing when it was, quote, unquote, a big-time sport. When it was still on the three networks regularly on the weekends, there wasn't so much pay-per-view. And when certain big fights would actually make the cover of not just Sports Illustrated, but also Time and Newsweek. And so I grew up in that era. I graduate high school. Uh, in the 90s, and then I became a radio intern at this short-lived FM uh, sports station in L.A. called K-Max. Now, during that time, what happened was I met two guys that wanted to do a boxing show and centered around gambling. And they heard me do some stuff where I was an intern. And they said, hey, do you know anything about boxing? And I said, yeah, I actually do. So they bought local radio t- time on another station called KIEV. And we would do the show with probably about a dozen listeners and it went on for about a couple of years and I was able to, we were able to get on some other radio stations. And then finally the internet popped up and then two guys by the name of Gary Randall and Doug Fisher, who were starting a thing called house of boxing. I literally did not even know what a website was. And they said, do you want to work for us? We could use a writer. Now, originally I wanted to be a sports writer growing up. And so I said, yes, I'll learn how to do it. And that was in 19, 99 to 2000 and by 2001 we had branched out and began another website called max boxing and that was really the beginning of it uh, i've been on radio i didn't really like the day-to-day grind very political in that industry uh, so i became i guess as some people have described me as an internet pioneer <laughs> every once in a while people say i grew up watching and reading you which is always a very uh, delicate, uh, interesting feeling. And that's how it developed. I, I just kept that at the grind. I love this job. I have a particular passion for the sport and also covering boxing. Um, and that's how it kind of began. That, that you just keep working at something. You evolve your skills. You improve it. 
and you keep getting more and more opportunities, and here I am today. That's the short version of my story. Yeah, funny thing is, I used to be a I used to be a big fan of House of Boxing, and I, I went through Max Boxing when y'all were going that period. And it's uh, one of the things that I know to separate you. I'm from San Antonio, Texas, and boxing is very big there. And you have a lot of guys who cover boxing, and they've never been in the gym, they never watched a sparring session, they never talked to a coach. So me reading reading other guys' works. It was very apparent they hadn't spent that time. They haven't really learned the sport or experienced it any level, whether it's sparring or actually just being in the gym on a consistent basis. So one of the main things that that really attracted me to your writing was the honesty of it and the nuts and bolts of it. You really were speaking from a perspective of somebody who actually seen somebody spar, not just once every three months, but I've seen a spar two weeks in a row. I've seen them spar two years in a row. I've seen the growth. I've seen the development. And that came through in your writing. They came through in your your analysis. You were very direct. Some people like to kind of play the political game. If a guy's plateaued technically, you just called it the way it was. And I always admire that. So that's why I continue to follow you because other guys, for big fights, they do the work. But for the in-between fights that lead up to the fighters becoming bigger, that's where they drop the ball at. And you didn't drop the ball with any fight you're talking about. You have done a huge amount of research on the camp, the corner, the fighter, the, the amateur history, and you're making sure everybody has the context to understand what they're seeing and why they're seeing it, which a lot of, a lot of boxing writers, even still now, don't have because they don't spend any time in gyms. They've never been in a ring. They've never talked to a trainer, and, and they're just going off somebody else's cliff notes, literally making articles off of somebody else's article. You can see it if you, if you read enough boxing journalism. You'll notice they're literally taking stuff and just rearranging it from somebody else's article, which is common yeah. to me and, and real boxing fans. You know the thing that I always preach to young writers, and again, I've been lucky. I've been able to do this as my primary job. A lot of guys moonlight, and I'm certainly not knocking them because everyone has bills to pay. And like I said, I'm very lucky. But if you have the opportunity to actually go to a gym, I think there's two things you have to do, guys. And me and Schwan talk about this all the time because I think Schwan technically, I learned from him on Twitter. But you have to go inside the gym. It's not just enough to watch the fight. To me, if you want to become a football expert, you better watch a lot of game film. And there's a lot of guys on YouTube that I'll actually break down what's a cover two, what's a cover three, what's a Tampa two, you know, what's a dig route. And you can start to really heighten your IQ over a particular subject. Now, when it comes to boxing, we're very lucky in a sense that, look, you can't really go to a Lakers practice and watch a whole practice. Uh, you can't go to a New England Patriots practice, that's for sure, and actually learn anything. In boxing, if you develop develop a relationship with a trainer or a fighter or the management or all three, you begin to have a lot of access to places like Wild Card with Freddie Roach, Ten Goose with Joe Goosen, uh, Big Bear with Abel Sanchez, Robert Garcia in Ro- Riverside, Joel Diaz in Indio. And they'll basically say, just tell us when you're coming. We're going to open the doors and you learn. So there's two things there. Go to the gym a lot. Shut up and observe. Okay. Also, ask questions. Be a fly on the wall. They're very accommodating. And just see something, take a mental note, and try to evolve and always build your foundation of knowledge. I think that's very key. I I don't like doing this job behind the desk or through conference calls. And the last couple of months during this pandemic, guys, I don't know if you know this, I'm actually not allowed to go to gyms, which is a killer. That, that, That to me is a vital part of my particular brand of coverage is actually going out and covering guys face-to-face and developing personal relationships and learning something. Um, Buddy McGirt's been bugging me to come to his gym for the last two months, and I'm trying to get access to do it. The other thing that I like to do 
And I don't think you necessarily have to get in there and spar and get hit, although I did that years ago. I wasn't very good for the record. But actually, work out. Get a pair of hand wraps, get some training gloves, get two or three-pound dumbbells, get, uh, get a jump rope, get some resistance bands, and go to a gym once a week, get a trainer. I've had McAfoley work thousands of rounds with me before he passed away, God rest his soul. And just actually learn what it is to hit a heavy bag. Understand how it is to shadow box, which I still learned from Rudy Hernandez um, at the Maywood Boxing Activity Center. I still do the workout that his boxers do once in a while. So just go out there and learn how to shadow box properly, set your feet, and then you, you begin to have a, a very keen understanding of what these fighters go through to a certain degree. And technically, you will learn something over a course of time, and it's a great way to get in shape. So if you do those type of things, along with watching the fights and talking to people and working the phone, you have a shot to be pretty decent at this. You know the funny thing, Steve, um, and we cover MMA. Rafael's actually competed before. I've never, I've never actually competed in it, but I used to, like, you know, said I went to gyms, I trained a lot, I knew a lot of fighters, I knew a lot of camps. And I just started tweeting to people on here. You know, I, I tweet my insights about why this guy's making a mistake, an error a corner made. And all of a sudden, fighters started contacting me through Twitter, being like, hey, I got some film. Can you scout this guy for me? Hey, I got this fighter. Can you give me a look? Tell me where I can address him at. Because they're like, and I was like, well, I never fought before. You mind? They're like, it's clear you know, like, it's clear you've been involved in the sport enough that you understand what's happening. You're, like, you're pointing out things. Right. People, know yeah. when you, people know when you know what you're talking about. Right. I mean, Schwann, think about this. Bill Belichick is not going to be in Canton, Ohio for his playing ability. Okay. Uh, Bill Walsh didn't play professional football. And if you go to boxing, you know, Emmanuel Stewart was a very good amateur. I don't know if people realize that. He actually won some national tournaments, but he didn't turn pro. He told me the story. He had to support his family. And for years, he worked for Pat Bell in Detroit climbing telephone poles. Um, Customato didn't have a pro career. Teddy Atlas didn't. Joe Goosen didn't. So that whole notion, and we get into this a lot, Schwan. I know, I know you've probably seen some of the back and forth. I know you get into it where people say, well, you haven't fought. You know what? Yeah. None of us has ever claimed we've been a seven-time world champion. We're on any pound-for-pound pound list. But let me get this straight. Uh, I don't need to be Rock Kim to know if an album is bad, or I don't need to be Julia Child to say, man, that was a terrible meal. It, 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 that is an interesting dynamic. Like, let me give you an example, Sean. It was funny. Two months ago, I, I didn't mean to go viral. I didn't mean to be incendiary towards fighters. But when Jorge Masvidal took that fight uh, against that one guy, I, I guess on six days' notice, I basically said, look, I think he kind of puts boxers to shame because a lot of boxers wouldn't take a fight on six and a half weeks' notice, much less six days. And then, you know, a couple boxers got on me. And all I ever said was, look, that knowledge and that opinion has been weaned from people like Ray Boom Boom Mancini, who had to weigh in the day of the fight. I've talked to numerous strength and conditioning coaches throughout the year. That's one thing that I covered probably before anybody about 20 years ago, just knowing nutrition and how to physically condition yourself, because I like to work out. I like to try to stay in shape. So that's just knowledge for me. And the other thing is I've talked to a lot of trainers who have echoed the saying they don't want to say it publicly because it would get them in hot water with the current fighters but they've all told me all you need is six to eight weeks basically at most and so that's the interesting thing sean is that if people have an axe to grind with you or an agenda you could be a um a 10-year veteran of the sport that won three 
world titles. They'll find a way to pick away at your knowledge and argue against it, though. And that's where, to me, you're just better off backing away. It's, it's not worth getting into a battle well, online but against oh, someone yeah, you I, don't know. I've, I've, had, I've had whole camps of fighters come after me because they keep trying, well, have you smart before? What do you know about this? Have you trained a guy who's won, won a world title? Have you won? Yeah. Oh, have you fought? No. And then that's when it all, they pile on you. Ah, oh, there you go. We found the chink in the armor we needed. Let's get him now. But. Right. So, and, and and then I would ask, I would ask, can you give me the box wreck of Gil Clancy, Ray Arcel? I, I mean, if you really think about it, and obviously a lot of trainers have fought like Joel Diaz and Freddie Roach, two of my personal favorites, and certainly Buddy McGirt's been one of the better ones. But if you go through all of sport, uh, let's go to the NBA. There's a lot of guys out there that probably play no more than junior college or Division two basketball. But nobody ever says, well, how many NBA All-Star games did you make? I, I, I do think it, it is a strange phenomenon, Sean, that in combat realm, and I get it, I think you do need to have some sort of practical experience. But do you necessarily, is it, is it the minimum prerequisite that you had to have at least 50 professional bouts? That's where I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure about that. No argument for me. Uh, speaking of the connection between, because we kind of blew I, I'm a MMA fan who also is a boxing fan, and there's actually very few people who re really are into both ends of it. So a lot of times during the show, I'll be talking to Raphael, and I'll I'll make a reference, and he generally understands, and our fans generally understand, but they don't they don't understand the context of what I'm making because they'll they don't they don't follow boxing, so they think certain things, certain rules and certain guidelines don't exist within the within the context of mixed martial arts. But um, one of the things I, I me and Raphael often talk about is in mixed martial arts. The, the fan base is generally uh, mostly uh, white males, 18 to 30, 18 to 40. And for a lot of the minority fighters, in some cases, they don't seem to get the push or the support of the promotions that the, the white fighters, the European fighters, the American fighters get. And w while as a, as a minority myself, I understand that. In a certain instance, I, I always tell people I'm the Andre Ward comparison. I was like, Andre Ward was one of the best fighters in the world, but he didn't get a push because even his own social circle, his own cultural circle didn't support him. If you can't get your own circle to support you and bring something to the table, it's hard to get the promotion to double his money into promoting you. Floyd Mayweather wasn't big until he struck a nerve with his African-American support, and then he started getting bigger. The money Mayweather played that, played that card. They got behind him. Then he started picking at other nationalities to kind of get an opposing force, and that's what helped build up his brand. When he wasn't he, he was one of the better fighters for years, but he didn't strike a nerve with any one cultural group, and that's why he never got that financial support backing. And I thought maybe you could discuss that a little bit and talk about how important it is to get your own people behind you before you can make demands or requests as a fighter. Well, let me go break this down, because I think there's several layers to what you said. As it relates to the MMA, and particularly the UFC, and I've said this for a while, I think one of the reasons why um, the Caucasian performers have a built-in base. I think it's because a lot of them wrestled. And if you go throughout any high school, I went to Montebello High School in East L.A., and we have a pretty good wrestling team for our level. We've had guys that go to state, and we always compete well as a team, even back when I was there. So if you look at most high schools in America, they all have a basketball team, a football team. They all have a wrestling team, and it is immensely popular in rural areas and throughout the middle America. So right there's a built-in base. And look, is there a racial component to it? Like the great white hope? I'm sure there is. There's no doubt about that. So right there, I think 
the fact that a lot of college level wrestlers are now being given an opportunity to go quote unquote pro as a combat athlete right there. You have a great base. You have a great base of participants and you also have a demographic that will has shown to, to consistently promote and support that product. That is important. Now, as it relates to some of the boxers you mentioned, with Andre Ward, who I certainly had my battles with when he was a active prize fighter, Schwan, I remember we used to talk about this back, what, five, six years ago, and I think you called in one time to the, uh, to the next round with me and Gabe Montoya. Schwan, I did, in fact. When he defeated, lose, uh, who was it, Carl Frotch to win the Super Six, everyone said, wow, yes. that could be the next man. That could be the next guy. He was, his stock was Apple. I mean, it was blue chip, okay? And then what happened? He kept suing Dan Goosen. Now, I'm not going to make a judgment on whether he should have or not. We know the, the results of those particular lawsuits. There was more than one. I always thought that with those belts and the Super 6 crime, there was one guy out there that had the other belt, and I thought it could have really sealed his fate as the next big American superstar. That was Lucien Boutte, who was a big star in that Quebec, Canada area. I actually thought he could beat him anywhere, whether it was Montreal or Mars. He didn't want to do it. Then he got into a period where he didn't fight for about a year and a half, two years. And he got into some other fights that weren't that great. Then he kind of rebounded with Kovalev. In my view, and I don't know if Andre has any regrets about this. I've never talked to him about it. You can never make up time. And out of body, out of sight, out of mind. And that's what became. He's a highly respected fighter. In a few years, he'll be in the Hall of Fame. He retired undefeated. I actually don't see him coming back. I think he's moved on to the next stage of his life. But I think that his ceiling was reached because of decisions that he decided to ultimately make. It relates to Mayweather. Mayweather's best well, move. Steve, was, Steve, Steve, did, Steve, Steve. As a yeah. side note, Carl, Carl Froch needs to send Andre Ward a thank you card because that fight with Lucian Beauty basically yeah. recharged his whole career. He owes his whole second half of his career to the fact that Andre Ward refused to take that fight, even though it was a winnable fight that would have taken him from star to superstar. Like, he dropped the ball on that. I don't care what he says. No regrets. He dropped the ball. You couldn't be more right, and I've written about it. I've talked about it. I've tweeted about it. Because when he shattered Butte, and then Carl Frotch went on this great run himself, and there was a point in time where the pressure was then on Andre Ward to come to England to fight, of course, in front of 80,000 people. I don't think that was ever realistic. But, you know, Andre Ward, I give him credit in one sense. He was very principled in a sense that he was not going to turn heel the way Mayweather did. He was not going to go out there and act or conduct himself in a manner that he believed was beneath him. He was not going to play up to a stereotype. I think that is very important to him, his personal image. So we go to Mayweather. Now, I, I covered Mayweather extensively early on in his career. And I can honestly tell you, at 130 pounds, when I saw him against Diego Corral, that's about as good a, a fighter as I've ever seen live. The speed, the quickness, uh, the ability to set punches up, to see things ahead of when they were going to actually uh, come his way. I've never, if I said to Doug, me and Doug were there that night at the MGM Grand, where he dominated Chico. I said, I've never seen Ray Leonard. We, we missed that part, Doug. I said, that's what he must have looked like. And I don't know if he's ever been quite the same guy after the first Jose Luis Castillo fight. I don't think he won it, but he's still a great fighter. But from a marketing standpoint, Schwan, I think that they did 
uh, uh, they made a choice. And I don't know if Floyd made that choice, if it was his team, but he turned heel. And so if you really think about marketing, what's the worst thing that you can be? It's not hated. It's having people be apathetic. And I remember certain Mayweather fights. I, I was there when he fought uh, Carlos uh, Balderas or Baldemir. It was one of the boringest events ever. And luckily for him, Delahoya bit and gave him a shot, which really launched him. But him turning into a quote-unquote black hat, as they would say in the Westerns, was the best thing for him. Um, you can make an argument that a lot of fighters have tried uh, that formula, like an Adrian Broner and other, other guys of that ilk. I'm not so sure it really worked, because you've got to be really good. The other thing that well, I think... Well, let, let, Steve, real Go quick, ahead. real quick. Sorry to interrupt you. Broner never got to Mayweather's level, but as far as the current stars out there, Broner's, Broner's been a pretty consistent draw. Like People go to fight him because money's there. Mikey Garcia didn't have to fight Broner. He fought Broner because Broner brings in a certain amount of attention, as did Manny Pacquiao. There's money to be made with Broner because Broner hasn't been a lead in, what, five, five six years? But he his ratings say I otherwise. Mean, and that and interview look, with Manny says otherwise. You look, you look at Broner's metrics. If you look at the – he was actually a draw in Cincinnati. Never understood why they didn't exploit that market more. He, he gets better than – much better than average ratings on Showtime. And, look, I like Broner. I, I, he's one of these – he's the court gesture. Gesture. Okay? I, I – I think we need guys like that. It's part of the fun of covering boxing. It's really sad what's happening in his real life now, and I think reality is really hitting him for a lot of decisions and his own behavior. But again, he he made that bet. He has to sleep in it, you know. But it is interesting if you look at the marketing of American fighters. I think that they have been hurt by the casino reliance in a sense that a lot of the fighters are from these major cities: Philadelphia, Detroit, um, the D.C. area. Right. And, and instead of being marketed like they would be in their home cities, they are instead shipped to these like, you know, Chumash Casino, Fantasy Springs. And it just doesn't work. I mean, look, I've, I spoke to uh, Manuel Stewart for years about this. God rest his soul. What a great guy he was. And he said that what they did with Kronk, with a group of African-American fighters or black fighters, whatever term you want to use in Detroit, they would never think of going and not showing them at the Joe Louis Arena or the Cobo Arena. And they made them into the fifth franchise along with the Lions, Tigers, Redskins, and whatever franchise. It became very important to the identity of the city. And I give the PBC credit. They've actually done a better job the last couple of years of making sure that a Caleb Plant is in Tennessee or that a Julian J. Rock Williams had a chance to defend his titles in Philadelphia, or a Jared Hurd could fight in the uh, D.C., uh, Virginia area. In my view, it has not always been the fighter's fault. The powers that, when I saw a fight, and I was there, Schwann, I remember I was all over this event. You had two very bright black American fighters in uh, Devin Alexander and Tim Bradley, who were undefeated, supposed to be the most important fight of 2011. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, let's place it Somewhere like Atlanta, which has a large swath of a black population with money, I think it would have been great. Or go to St. Louis because Devin was a draw there. That wasn't going to happen with Bradley. Guys, they put it in Pontiac, Michigan in the Silverdome, and the, and, and the event was a disaster. That's where the game failed the fighters. It failed itself. And, and I think when the pandemic ends, guys, it'll be very interesting to me 
will, will the promoters that are really the ones that are important, are they going to keep relying on the casinos or are they going to create more Bud Crawfords in Omaha? I think that's a very key issue for the business going forward. Well, in, well, in boxing, that, that's true, but in, in mixed martial arts, especially, I guess, UFC is really the, the name game in town. Uh, my argument has been that you have this brand that sells kind of regardless, so a lot of the onus should fall on a fighter because you can't control completely how people are going to respond to you, but it's better than just sitting back and asking the promotion, you know, waiting for the promotion to take action. It's your career. You only have a brief period of time in combat sports, so whatever you need there to do to, to cross that barrier, you have to do it. No, you're right, but but you know what? There's a very key difference, and I've got to give Dana White and that organization credit. They make the fights much more often than boxing. Now, do they have a built-in advantage given the fact that they are a virtual monopoly and they control about, what, 85 to 90 percent of the blue-chip talent? And the fighters don't seem to have anyone truly looking at the fiduciary responsibilities for their own interest. All that is true, but look, you're right. I've, I've actually never heard of a UFC fight where I knew the real participants. I'm not the biggest fan. I appreciate what they do. But the way they brand it, it's always a number. UFC 250, UFC 251. In other words, they're telling you, we're bringing you fights with our guys, and we're going to try to make the best possible matchups. With boxing, it is about the names on the marquee. And unfortunately, guys, with as fractured as the game is, we basically have three major leagues of boxing. You know what they are. It's Golden Boy. Uh, on Matchroom at PBC, top rank with ESPN, and then the PBC with Showtime and Fox. So you're not getting a lot of fights. I actually think right now, guys, there's a saturation point in boxing where it's way too much quantity, not enough quality. And so to me, I really respect the fact that UFC, it's not a great model for the actual labor. They don't get paid a lot or maybe enough. But in terms of satisfying the consumer because of their system that they've created, it's a much better product. And that's why the UFC can basically go anywhere, whether it's a casino or Dubai, and there's major interest in that event. And so I, I, I think boxing has, I don't want to say reached a critical point, but they have to look in the mirror. As the calendar turns, I do believe we will get back to a sense of normalcy soon enough, and they're going to be able to sell tickets and have a live gate. They better put their best foot forward, guys. It's a tough road out there. So basically, boxing. I think a lot of boxing promoters would like to have some of the control Dana White has, but I don't. But I think also on the other end, some of the MMA fighters are jealous of the boxers because they can consistently, you know, like if you fight Floyd Mayweather, you're getting career, you're getting a career payday. You fight a bigger name in MMA, uh, you might not no get anything. You might still yeah. get your contracted money. You know. Look, again, I'm not a UFC expert, but I've seen a few clips where Dana White openly just says, hey, this guy didn't want the fight. I wasn't going to F around. We went to the next guy. That almost never happens in boxing. And, and, and here's the difference. Okay, I, I think the numbers are a little bit off, but I think I'm within the ballpark. For a major pay-per-view event, let's see if that features a prime Manny Pacquiao or a prime Floyd Mayweather, anyone that's really a franchise, Oscar De La Hoya, Mike Tyson, whoever. The money that is derived at an event, and let's say they do like a million buys at about $80 a head. So basically, the main event performers, and especially the marquee name, they will get at least two-thirds to 75% of that money. It's theirs. 
while the promotion takes the rest. In the UFC, it's just it's just the opposite. And and look, and you said it best. In the in the UFC, probably looked at boxing, and the performers say, "Wow, I wish I had that system. I wish I could have a real manager that could actually battle my promoter." And we had some leverage. While I believe, and I'm seeing this more and more on social media, Schwan, and I think you notice it also, a lot of boxing fans are saying, hmm, how come we can't have more of what the UFC has? I, I would like to think there is a happy medium that both industries can reach. Yeah, I, I like to think so too. But uh, the UFC ain't giving up. Me and Rafael just talked about how the UFC, the fighters have basically played themselves and played into the UFC's hands by not building up their own brands, and now it's giving them complete power, which the UFC is not going to give up one ounce of. And in boxing, you might be able to get the boxers. The boxers might be forced to have to take tougher matchups, but they're still going to demand their big paydays. They just might be willing to take a few more risks now, as you see with um, guys like Danny Garcia, all of a sudden he wants to fight Errol Spence. Yeah, because now the money is there. Before, the money wasn't there with Errol. Now the money's there. People are willing to take some risks because it's going to start in- hitting their pocketbook. Same thing with Ryan Garcia. Uh, if everything was normal, he's not fighting Luke Campbell. He's fighting him because now to get that money he wants, people are demanding he face a certain caliber opponent. They're not, I'm not going to pay you $3 million to fight Rod Salka. No, you're right about that. But also, there's also one key element that we, we have not brought up here, and the, the difference between the industries and how it does directly impact the money made by the participants. That's the Muhammad Ali Act. In boxing, it's been implemented for a couple decades, where, which in theory is giving the fighters and their representatives full disclosure of the overall revenue or money in the pot so they realize that, hey, we're not getting just two cents on the dollar that's being brought in. So theoretically, that gives you a safety net or a starting point where a management can say, hey, whoa, 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 we're not taking, we're not getting completely lowballed here. you got to give us at least this much. That does not exist in the UFC for some reason. I believe the UFC has paid for lobbying to make sure it does not happen. That right there is a key difference uh, between the two industries. And that's why when Dana has talked about getting into boxing, I never have taken it seriously for a couple of reasons. Number one, he wouldn't be a monopoly. Number two, he's going up against an established industry. Number three, the whole specter of the Muhammad Ali Act, I think completely changes the tenor of what he has been used to in terms of a business plan for the past 15, 20 years. Yep. I mean, it's it's a big factor and they're fighting to make sure it doesn't it doesn't change. I really think MMA fighters, for the most part, have pretty much trapped themselves. And I think boxers see this and they're like, dude, we're not we're not giving up. The, we're not giving up that kind of power, because once you once you get once the promoters have that power, they, they don't have the inclination or the kindness to to give it up. And I wouldn't expect them to. I mean, that's right. ridiculous. You're winning. Why? Why would you give it up? The boxers Let me give don't. It so example. I understand what voters with the recent NBA, where these guys went on strike, when they said that we might sit out the whole playoffs, I, amid all the hysteria and people crowning people as heroes, there was, a, there was a reality here. It's called the CBA, the Collective Bargaining Agreement. And the NBA Players Association has one of the most favorable deals of any professional league by far. I mean, the NFL players look at that and say, man, I wish I was five inches taller and could jump 10 more inches on my vertical. Because if they would have walked out and then basically made their current CBA null and void, that would have been suicide financially. 
So, you know, you're right. The system that the UFC has, I don't know how you change it. Because, look, if you're the biggest, but there have been a few guys that have broken the system or created their own, namely Conor McGregor. Um, and there was the female boxer, um, not the one. What was her name? The blonde girl that, that's gotten recently. That got really, yeah. Um, there have been a few performers that have broken through and kind of created their own industry. But for the most part, Dana has it under control. It's a factory line. No one's bigger than the three letters or the brand. It's much like the NFL. Boxing is a little bit different. It, it is about the star, and that's why one guy with Canelo Alvarez can get a deal with the zone where he gets over 30 to 35 million per fight. And, but then on the low end, four round fighters in Tijuana probably get $35 for a fight. I, I don't know how you bridge that gap. Um, I, I do have an idea guys though. And I, and Schwan, I think you've seen a few times me writing about this back in the old days, even when Ray Leonard and Hearns would fight a lot of these big fights that you saw, these guys weren't necessarily guaranteed big amounts. What they used to do, they used to go to lower amount, and they basically said, in terms of the ticket sales and the closed circuit, there really wasn't pay-per-view back then. But in other words, whatever money we generate here, and that could be $0.10 cents or it could be $10 million, we're going to go on a percentage split. So if you were the bigger draw, you'd get probably 65% of the gate, and the other guy would get 35%. You start doing that, and I don't know if fighters would go for it because, again, they're not going to give up the guaranteed money. I think two things would happen. Number one, uh, you'd get better fights because if you are a fighter, understanding that the money you generate directly correlates with the quality of fights, you're not taking Rod Salko. You're taking a real guy. And also, I believe more fighters at that point would have an impetus to take much better quality fights across the board. And also, you might see fighters who are more active and fighting twice a year, because I think that's been a big problem. Our, our biggest stars simply do not perform enough in front of the public. So that would improve the sport altogether, because you'd have the stars out in the public more, promotions yeah. would be more likely to work together, and there'd be better money, and the fans would be happier because they're getting the matchups they want. Yeah, I mean, Sean, dude, let, let's take a look at this world, the sports industry, without the pandemic. Let's, let's pretend like everything's normal. From the time that I've been in sports media and I've been a sports fan basically my whole life, other leagues have always found ways to bulk up the schedule. In other words, have more games on TV. I mean, when I grew up as a kid, all you got football, for instance, you would get on Sunday, right, all throughout the day, and you had Monday night football and the occasional Thursday. And college football was basically Saturday. Now, you basically, outside of, I think, Wednesday, Believe it or not, starting with the Mac, there's games almost every night of the week. Multiple games, starting from Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday with football. Then you got Monday night football. Then Tuesday, it starts over again. And they'd always find ways to have your best teams or your most iconic brands, whether it's the Lakers or the Rams, not the Rams, Lakers or the Cowboys, be in front of the national audience more. When I grew up, uh, certain fighters would fight four, five, six times a year. That doesn't happen anymore. And I don't know if you guys recall, about three months ago, I wrote a story, and I pushed for it. Oscar De La Hoya, who at the time in 1997 was the biggest star in boxing coming off his victory over Julio Cesar Chavez in June of 96, ascended to another level. And he fought five times, all of them championship fights, 
four of them pay-per-view, none of them with an exorbitant guarantee, and he basically worked off a percentage. Guys, I think maybe you go back to the times of maybe Muhammad Ali, where the biggest star in boxing actually fought more than three times in a calendar year. Think about the effect this game would have. Um, let me ask you guys both. Who's the biggest name in boxing right now? Let's say in North America. I want to take a player. Who do you think are, is the biggest name right now? Who's the Canelo? biggest star? Okay, you're going with Canelo. What about you, Schwan? Raphael. Um, uh, goodness, Tyson Fury? Okay, so you're going Tyson Fury. Okay, and I'll go with Canelo, but I think Anthony Joshua was also in that same realm. So let's go with any of those guys. What do you think would be the impact of this sport if for one year they said, you know what, we're not going to go just twice a year. We're going to go four times a year. We're going to fight every single quarter of the year, and we're going to spread the love. We're going to go to L.A., we're going to go to Dallas, we'll go once to New York, um, and we're just going to kind of go on a tour. And Think about the impact that would just have on the sport itself. And it, it's, I don't think it's possible, though. I really don't. And boxing has, with no, no pun on words here, they boxed themselves in where they've created a system where they've created an impetus for our best fighters to fight less. It, it really makes no sense. You know, you know, the comparison I often make to somebody, I always said when we talk about boxers not being active or any time somebody's gotten spoiled, I said, it's like if somebody tells you, I'll give you a million dollars a year, all you have to do is flip this light switch. And they're like, great, I'll just flip this light switch. And they'll say, okay, I'm going to give you the same million, but now I need you to flip the switch on, and I need you to flip it off. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I got to pay a million to flip it on. I should get a million to flip it off. When yeah. in reality, a million dollars <laughs> to flip on and off a switch a year is great, but they're thinking, well, I got all this money for this. Why should I have to do anything more? And now these fighters are so used to getting these big paydays. They don't want to take pay cuts, but I always, I also say, like, if a fighter has a person working at their house, if that person can't take a pay cut, that housekeeper, that that caregiver, that car guy, they're getting cut because I, I've, I've got to manage my money well. So I don't understand why they don't understand why a promoter might have to say, okay, if you want $4 million to fight, I need you taking on a $4 million challenge, or you have to fight a bunch to make this make, this make sense to me. It's like they, they, they get dumb yeah. when they want to. They're conveniently ignorant. No, there's no doubt. I mean, look, if you go back and Bruce Trampler, Hall of Fame matchmaker for Tom Frank, pointed this out to me. He goes, do your research, look up the old articles with fights involving Ray Robinson or Joe Lewis, anyone in that era. Steve, they never really talked about guaranteed listed purses. They basically talked about percentages. So before television or specifically pay-per-view or closed circuit was even available, if you fought at the Madison Square Garden, Teddy Brenner who is the all-time greatest matchmaker, basically said, I got to make fights to sell tickets because, A, none of these fighters are under contract to us, and we are working off the gen uh, the revenue generated from tickets. So I need to put on a card, and specifically a main event, that's much more likely to bring in 18,000 people than 8,000 people. So he had a real impetus not to protect any fighters or develop them. He didn't care about that. They weren't his property. Um, and that was across the board back then. Nowadays... That's what, you think? That, that's what, the, that's it. That's what MMA does, because Dana says they're, they're uh, what do you call it, uh, temporary... What is it, Rafael? Temporary workers, um, freelance workers, contract workers, right? Uh, um, independent contractors. How, yeah, right. independent contractors. 
So it's like he makes the biggest matchup that'll help the UFC because you're an independent contractor. I really don't care if you can go or not. Either you can or you can. If you can, I'm going to the next biggest matchup. Right. I mean, I you know, look, when it comes to boxing, and, and look, the, there was a gold rush going way back to the 70s when HBO came on the scene and they're paying all this money. When they started signing fighters to exclusive contracts, number one, it boxed them in. They couldn't fight on networks anymore. And then, and look, the fighters themselves, whether it was Oscar De La Hoya, Manny Pacquiao, Floyd Mayweather, they became franchises that were very, very integral to the HBO brand. So, like, look, the tagline would be, hey, if you go with HBO, you get the Sopranos, you get this show, you get inside the NFL. Oh, and we have Floyd Mayweather, De La Hoya fights. So then at that point, if you're a network, understanding that a De La Hoya or a Floyd Mayweather bring you a certain amount of subscribers, what's the impetus to get them beat? See, now, now that they became, in, in essence, the co-promoters. Then think about this. If you have a fighter that you're paying XYZ millions amount, and let's just say they're just a they're star, like they could fight you or me or a broomstick, and they draw 15,000 people, and they would draw over a, well over a million people on television, and you got to pay that guy a guaranteed amount. If you ask that fighter to fight someone a little bit tougher or really tough, that guy's not coming off his minimum amount. You got to pay him more. Um, so you're creating a system that's really good on one end, but really bad on the other. But but I really believe, guys, and I'm not calling it a crisis point. I'm, I'm not calling it a do or die situation for boxing. Given where we are in the world today, if we don't make certain fights. It's gonna be I, it's it's gonna be damaging to the sport because right now what I'm sensing, Schwan, and you're on Twitter a lot with me. Aren't you getting the sense fans are getting kind of sick of seeing just a lot of fights that are basically meaningless? Yeah, yeah. A lot of people are starting to push back on it. I, I really believe I really believe that's why certain guys are taking certain fights or pushing for certain fights because they understand that this payday is going to go away if I, I don't present a challenge. But um, enough of the box the business of boxing. I wanted to really talk, have a little bit of a discussion about, because um, I've said this a lot on Twitter, me and you've had this conversation. Uh, it seems like a lot of, it seems to be a lack of progression or a regression in the skills regarding the corners and in the regards to the fighters. It seems like people now just find the biggest and best athlete and try to throw them out there instead of really trying to build a fighter. I see so many fighters who are fast or explosive and hit hard, but they can't hook off a jab. They don't use it. They, they jab their way in, but they, they don't jab on their way out. They don't attack the body. There seem to be a lot of technical and strategical holes in a lot of the fighters who are, who are I'm be, being told, are going to be potential Hall of Famers. I'm like, you can't hook up the jab. How are you a Hall of Famer? You can't slip a jab. How are you a Hall of Famer? I have a theory on that, and I, I've talked about this ad nauseum. I think there's way too much of a reliance on mitt work. And it's not mitt work that alone is wrong. It's the way you do mitt work. I, I, when I see these long choreographed, 88-punch combinations where guys don't move their feet and they're being programmed to throw certain combinations over and over and over again, it, it creates a situation. And I, I've said this. I think guys actually know how to work mitts and do mitts. They don't actually know how to punch and fight because there's a difference. They don't know how to really punch with great leverage or force, shifting of weight, and they focus in on a lot of speed and quickness, but not a lot of execution. And you're right. Hooking off the jab I mean, I almost cried when I saw Joe Smith do it because I, I had no comprehension that he even understood that, and he actually added on to his game. But 
look, Sean, and I know that you, you've engaged with the guys on Twitter with me about this. Shadow boxing to me is the way you set the foundation. That is the DNA of yourself as a fighter from a technical and fundamental standpoint. Uh, when I do a boxing workout, the first 20 minutes of whatever I do is shadow boxing uh, with two or three pound weights to really build up that stamina in the shoulders and the arms and, and just to be able to build up that conditioning. But I've learned one thing, and I, I didn't always feel this way. I thought shadow boxing was monotonous and boring. I actually find it to be very instructive now because you can actually visualize how you would attack a fighter and actually just look at your own technique. I don't think enough fighters do that. And one thing I've noticed, guys, is that when I'm at a gym and I see an elite fighter, whether it's Manny Pacquiao, uh, Gennady Golovkin, young guys like Israel Madrimov, guys of that ilk, they all all take shadow boxing seriously. I mean, they are really into it. It's not just a warm-up for them. It is the first step of their workout, and oftentimes it's how they finish up. And the other thing is, Schwan, I don't think – I think we're at the Instagram model uh, stage of boxing, that guys would rather look good on social media and be flashy and throw a 14-punch combination rather than actually learning how to truly execute a jab or a two or three punch combination that's actually more realistic in the gym. And, and, and yeah. I think Bruce Lee once said it. Instead of practicing a thousand kicks, I practice one kick a thousand times. I think we need more of the latter uh, and not the former. Also, another thing, I don't know if enough kids today actually have an appreciation and study the older fighters. Now, I don't mean from the 1920s and 30s. I get it. That's like a young basketball player watching Bob Cousy to them or Bob Pettit. I get it. But if you go all the way to at least maybe the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, you will see a lot of subtleties and that they weren't quite as athletic. They weren't quite as ripped up physically. They may have not been quite as explosive. But from a technical standpoint in terms of balance and fundamentals, I, I do think they were a little bit better. I think those things all really uh, play in. And to tie this all up, Schwan, you need teachers. You need teachers who are more than just guys that are going to uh, wear a towel around their neck, as Teddy Atlas would say, and yell time and say, good job, kid. you got to have a real teacher that will go out there and actually coach. And, Schwan, I know you coach. Not everything is peaches and cream. You're not always high-fiving your kids. And it's the one sport that I've seen. I don't think our coaches are always tough enough. I, I think there's way too much cheerleading and pom-pom waving and, and not enough real actual coaching and teaching yeah, and disciplining. It's real funny. I, I always make this comparison. I tell people something that combat sports and basketball has in common because I've done them both. I work with fighters. I work with athletes in both. It's like a lot of it is too much apparatus built. In basketball, it's the cones. It's the, the gloves. Right. It's, the, it's the pads. In boxing, it's the, the mitts and all this stuff. And I was like, a lot of it, it's like people do stuff. They do these combinations of boxing, step back, five dribble combo. You can't – people aren't being honest with their athletes. Certain athletes aren't punchers, so you don't train them as a puncher. Certain athletes are slow. You have to train them to navigate that weakness and emphasize the strength. Same thing, certain kids aren't shooters. Certain kids aren't great ball handlers. You have to make an adjustment, but that requires you to ask questions of more experienced guys. And nobody wants to admit they don't know it all. And two, that, that that requires you to be very honest with the athlete. Hey, you're not a puncher. You need to keep your jab going. You need to have your defense. Your footwork needs to be precise. Yeah, you're fast, but you're a terrible boxer. But nobody wants to say that because nowadays they'll just go to another coach. They'll just go to another corner. 
That's what they're doing. Right. Just leave. There's too much money. So nobody wants to be honest, and the product is suffering, which also hurts because boxing fans, not a lot of boxing fans are super knowledgeable, but there's enough who are, who are sitting there just disgusted by what they're seeing. And Schwan, here's the thing, and I'm sure you've coached where you've had to get on someone. You're not requesting them to box out or switch on deep. You're commanding them. You've probably raised yeah. your voice a few times, and you've probably had, you know, it, you know players look at you players. like, oh my it's, God. it's fighters and basketball. I've had to talk to coach, and they're like, I had a short story. I had a fighter who I was working with. He had I worked with him because he had a boxing background. He abandoned his jab, lost four fights in a row because his trainer said, it's MMA. He's saying, that's boring. That's not going to get to the UFC. So we start working together. I'm like, get on your jab, your footwork, your fangs. He wins four in a row. He has a UFC looking at him. If he wins the next two fights, his his coach then tells him, get rid of your jab. That's boring. And he gets knocked out in the last two fights. And I'm like, don't listen to him. He's an idiot. And I'm talking to these people. I'm like, what are you talking about? I hate to pull pull rank here, but you've never worked with a world-class fighter. I have. They, they searched me out. And you're listening to this guy. He's an idiot. Well, he's my head coach. Stop listening to him. Go find another coach. This guy is going to ruin you. And he did. And I, I do the same thing with the players. I'm like, dude, you're not fast. I told my own daughter, you're not fast enough to get that to get that move off. You need to pass the ball, rebound, and box out. You want to get on the floor? Oh, you don't think so? Go go do the nonsense you're doing and see how, see, see how many minutes you get. Oh, you got sat on the bench again. Stop doing what you want to do and do what works. It's like yeah, you can't beat that. You better know who you are. And as a teacher, as a coach, you better know what you have, okay? Um, and that's just, it's interesting to me, like, even like with, when you want to do film study, I, it's, it's amazing to me. There's actually coaches that still say, I don't really watch fights. I go, what do you mean? You don't watch fights for entertainment or you don't watch fights to review? They go, really? Nah, unless I'm working a corner, I don't like to watch everything. I'll be honest with you. I would want a trainer that watches everything and specifically would actually want to sit down with me after a particular fight and say, look, I'm not going to make you watch the whole fight. There's three segments here. I don't like what you did for these 20 seconds because it could be the difference between winning or losing a round, which in essence can be winning or losing a fight, which can affect all our money. And I, and I think that's a key part and element of it. We don't have the teachers that we had. Um, and you'd be surprised. The guys that I really respect – and look, I am not against strength and conditioning coaches. I've learned a lot from them. I think there's a place for them. I think you need nutritionists because let's face it, these fighters are not the most disciplined nowadays fighting not one but, but the ones, the, the coaches and teachers that I really like, they keep it simple. They're not doing a lot of uh, cone drills. They're, they're doing the same things that probably John Wooden was doing 40 years ago. Because, Schwan, the principles of the game, they don't change that much regardless of sport. They really don't. Nope. Nope. Before, and before we, we're going to be wrapping up a little bit, I just wanted to talk, maybe have a little bit of discussion of, of uh, some fights you're looking forward to. I know there's two I'm looking forward to, uh, Garcia and uh, Spence, just to see how Spence is looking come back. And especially uh, Teofomo uh, Lopez versus um, Lomachenko. Lomachenko. Oh, Lomachenko. Yeah. And mainly, mainly before I let you get into this, I wanted to say on our on our podcast, we talked about the fight, and I said I was really kind of disappointed by Teofomo when he started talking about the money because I'm like, he challenged – Vasily as a man, as a champion and as a man. I'm calling you out. I want to fight you. And now he's like talking money. That's like saying, well, I fight you right now, but I don't want to go to jail. Why'd you open your mouth? You know, and, and it was really uh, disappointing to me that I understand the money. I understand the finances. I understand the career. But if that's the, that's the angle you're playing, play that angle. Don't say I'm macho. Don't say I'm here for war and then start 
talk to me about the price of the war that it's going to cost. You, you call the guy out. You got to do it. You know, I, to be fair, they do call it prize fighting. These guys do it for a living. Look, everyone has a right to ask for the most amount of money for a job, but you do have you're going to be dictated to by the market that currently exists. Did the market change beginning in mid-March? Yeah, it did. That's the reality. Where I think they made a mistake is that they started to leak information towards the media. Numbers started getting out. And look, all three of us, I like to think, are working stiffs. Okay? We, we're not going to have a trust fund to go back on. Raphael's uh, got like 17 jobs. Raphael's yeah, got 17 God. jobs. Right. At least. Hey, Mon, I remember Living Color. But anyway, so if you look at it, no one in this, most of America, where you have 35 to 40 million people either furloughed or now unemployed, and they don't know where their next meal is coming from, and they got families to feed, they are not going to feel sympathetic towards any athlete, not just any boxer or Tiafimo Lopez. They're not going to feel any particular sympathy for a guy turning down anything north of a couple hundred thousand dollars. They're not. That's the reality. And look, I really like Tiafimo. He's one of my favorite young fighters. I remember after the second fight, I said to somebody at top rank, that's your guy. I said, that kid can be special. And when he wrote this one tweet where he said, I got a family to feed. And I'm thinking to myself, Tio, everyone's got a family to feed. I, I, I don't think it helped him. But eventually, to his credit, he said, no, 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 we're going to make the fight. They got the fight done. So I give him credit for that. I do think that any athlete right now, um, if they are blessed with the genetics and the actual ability and a work ethic to have gotten to the top level, I wouldn't bring up money right now. The, the general public is not hearing it. Now, from an actual fight standpoint, Sean, I don't know if you agree with me, the most underrated part of Tiafimo, and the one thing I do disagree with what I hear about, it's always about Tiafimo's power. Yeah, I think that's a facet, but one thing I've noticed, Sean, why I really liked him in the beginning, he has some James Tony-like abilities to, to pull counter, slip and pull, and actually control spacing and run guys into blind shots. I think he's much craftier than, he, than what he's given for. I don't think it's just about brute strength with this kid. I, I don't think it is either, but I think some of that is his speed. He's got, like, the right idea, but I think right now it's the speed and explosiveness that allows him to get it off. I feel like there's a couple subtle subtleties he's missing that can be exploited by Lomachenko. Now, if Lomachenko takes him as a joke, he'll catch him early and he'll punish him with his, his skill set and his IQ. But I don't think Lomachenko takes anybody as a joke. So I, don't, no, I wouldn't expect I, to catch him off guard. And, Schwan, the other thing is, um, this is the one fight where I think Tiafimo has to be quick on his feet. He's one of those guys, he likes to lead you into punches. He likes to kind of set on his heels and lay traps. I don't see... Lomachenko falling for those traps because the boxing IQ is very high. He, he faints a lot and he always works at certain angles. It seems to come at you in three different uh, ways. So in, in this fight, Tiafimo is going to have to really anticipate. But I also think, and I, I went back, go back to the Lomachenko-Pedraza fight. Pedraza touched him a lot, Sean. And again, we don't know what's going on in the back. We may have been sick, just a bad day at the office. That's the fight where I started thinking, you know, it's not such a crazy idea for this kid who's the natural lightweight who will one day be at 40 and 47 in the prime of his life. Look, Lomachenko is now in his early to mid-30s, had a lot of amateur fights, and there are some signs that I don't want to say decline, but he has flattened out physically. That's just my view. 
is that is that age or is that him fighting like a weight class or two above where he should be fighting at that's slowing him down? Oh, it could be both, and that that's that's a great point you make. This fight is at thirty five. Yeah, and uh, and and also, talk to me a little bit about Spence and Garcia. I I, I really really the question I think we have is is Spence a hundred percent back because a lot of his success is based on his cardio, his physicality, and that durability. I mean, he can box, but he's willing to take some to give some because he knows he can win that battle of attrition. If he can't take a shot like he used to, especially to the body, I don't know how well this works for him because Garcia's a purely a, a counter a counterfighter who fights in spots, but he's very good at letting you fire off and then cleaning you up with that counter. And if Spence isn't 100%, I, I can't imagine, I can't imagine that that he, he has an easy time with Garcia because Garcia is very, he doesn't have great power, but his timing and his placement on the shots, at least the first two, maybe in a combination it's not great, but the first two, it's usually pretty spot on. It's usually pretty damaging. Schwan, I opened some eyes because I did a fight preview for the rest of the year, and I basically said I think Danny Garcia can win this fight. And it has nothing to do with the ability. Look, none of us really knows, no matter what Derek James, his trainer, says about what version of Errol Spence exists after he got thrown out of that car. Look, I, I am not a doctor. I don't even play one on TV. But I could you say been to Holiday Express. Yeah, I've been to Holiday Express though. But look, is it completely outrageous to think that a guy who got thrown out of his car um, had to replace, I believe, his teeth, his jaw may have been broken? Is it completely outrageous to think that he may be altered physically forever? And with that said, what's going to happen the first time he sparred? We still don't know if he's taking if he has taken an actual punch to the face and to the jaw and how he reacts, that to me is the great unknown. That right there is to me, the very, very uh, intriguing aspect of that particular promotion. And like you said, Schwan, not only is Danny Garcia a pretty heavy handed guy, even at 47, he times that left hook. I know people make fun of the fact he doesn't even look or seems to be closing his eyes or looking away with the left hook. That's because he has a great feel for sense and distance. And the one thing I noticed about Errol Spence, he is southpaw. He's got solid boxing skills. He unfurls a very educated right jab, but he does pop his head up as he comes back out um, after throwing punches. I think that cleanup left hook is going to be there. And Danny has a way of timing that punch. So, again, un unless I'm in the gym and I can see with my own eyes how Errol looks during sparring, a, a lot of this is us just guessing and speculating. Yeah, I, I, uh, I really, and I, I don't know how much Garcia's dad came up with this or Garcia figured out himself or another trainer came up with the, uh, the timing and the discipline he has to, ha to get those counters off is very impressive to me. And if his dad came up with that, Regardless of what I think think of him as a person or overall trainer, he, he's, <laughs> Angel done, he's done a great job. <laughs> hey, hey, look, I can't lie. Those videos that Angel's been putting out, and, and look, I, I'm going to show my age here as a former or used to be a WWF fan. And there's kind of a classy Freddie Blassie feel to Angel Garcia. You know, the only thing uh, he needs yeah. to learn about is pencil neck geek. <laughs> I got a kick out of that guy. I can't lie. I get yeah, a kick out of the guy. He's created a. He's actually through all his trash talking nonsense. He's created a big financial, um, um, I don't know, like a, a pot of gold for Danny because people yeah. he's coming to see his dad. I mean, 
I don't even interested in seeing a fight. What's his dad gonna say before and after? That's what I want to know. Yeah, and it's look. I don't think he can say some of the stuff now, given our political climate. Uh, the guy's a character. I, you know, look. This is part of the reason why I love covering the sport of boxing. But let's go back to the fight. Wherever it's gonna be at, that first really good shot that Danny Garcia lands right on the chops. I want to see how Errol Spence responds. That's it. I have a tough question. I because I've asked, I've asked this multiple times. I might have even approached you with this, and I know you listened to me because I was the only one who predicted that uh, Ruiz would beat Joshua before all the experts said it. I came out at you. You challenged someone to say it, and I said it, and I told you the round too. <laughs> yes, you did. You you were Sean Stradamus, and I told you know what's funny. That's when the uh, Legends Boxing Club was still open out here in California. Okay, it's about fifteen minutes away from LA. He had just come off the Dimitrenko fight, okay? And I think that was the night that Terrence Crawford fought uh, Amir Khan. He was actually back at the gym a week or two later. And I remember saying, look, say what you want about Andy, because I've seen Andy when he was a kid all the way at wild card. And he had fluidity and natural hand speed and the things you cannot teach. But the fact that he had already fought was a huge factor. But it's unfortunately he went back to being Andy Ruiz soon thereafter. He regressed to that medium. Uh, before before I, I have two more things I want to ask. Just br- touch on really briefly. One, how stupid was Manny Pacquiao for not jumping on this Spence fight? This is the best time to fight Errol Spence. The best time to get him is right now. Manny's still a big puncher. I need to find out if Spence can take a punch. This is the best chance to be competitive with him and get a huge payday. And if he beats him, you can say, I, I don't want to hear excuses. You stepped in the ring, no excuses. And he could vault himself into a whole nother stratosphere as far as a fighter. And then my second thing that I want to touch on, just really briefly, Gerald Miller. How embarrassing is it for him to be busted so many times and basically throw his whole boxing career away for PEDs? You mean Big Pharma? I mean, look, yeah. I, I actually really like Gerald from a personal standpoint. And about four or five years ago, when I was hired to do some of his broadcasts that were on CBS Sports Network, I thought, wow, this guy's pretty good, pretty athletic. Doesn't punch exceptionally hard, but he had a great motor. <laughs> questionable. And he has a way of getting stronger throughout the fight. Again, questionable. And he puts punches together really well. Again, questionable. And here's the thing that was really funny, Sean. So I followed him on Instagram. And one thing I noticed was this is back in 2016 and 17. He was the one fighter that would just flat out put on social media all his workouts. And they were all like this Olympic powerlifting stuff. I mean, we're talking dead, deadlifts and cleans and snatches and uh, so a little bit of uh, shoulder presses and, and um, bench press. And he's lifting real weight. And I remember the first time I called a fight with him or, or one of his fights with Great Cohen Promotions, he was probably in the high 260s, low 270s. And the word was, wow, if he could ever get to like 250, he's going to be great. But instead, Sean, every fight he'd come in, Six, seven pounds heavier to a point where he became a 300-pounder. It didn't matter. And, and here's the thing that's really bad is that it wasn't just one test that he failed before Anthony Joshua. It was three. And every subsequent test seemed to have more drugs in it than a CVS pharmacy. And yet he never really seemed to come clean. And, and then for this fight, I, I thought it was very questionable top rank signing him. And I know people at top rank were not unanimously on board with it. And before the Jerry Forrest fight, you saw why. 
And then he gets busted for the same stuff. And look, I don't want to go out there and try this case on your podcast because, look, I'm not a judge or the jury. He deserves a fair trial. But from an optical standpoint, it's terrible. It really is. And I, I don't – I would be very wary as a promoter or a network in ever using him. Because let's say you do book him. And let's say something really bad happens and he tests positive again. I think you're liable. I think there's a certain amount of accountability that you have for even providing that opportunity. So I I don't see, I think Jarrell Miller, I don't know if he's suspended for life, but what I have been told, guys, from people within the business is he is considered persona non grata. I don't know where his career goes from here. And Sean, what was the other thing you wanted me to speak of? How Manny Pacquiao did not jump on this fence okay. fight. No. I think. Well, given the state of the world with the pandemic and the fact you can't have a large gate, and look, for certain fights, it doesn't matter. For other fights, it really does. And when it comes to a Manny Pacquiao fight, you're still dealing in millions of dollars. And I don't know where the pay-per-view market is right now, given the state of the economy. I don't. I get the sense, and talking to a few people, Manny Pacquiao's not going to fight this year because they just can't. First of all, he may not be able to get into the country. Um, and I don't know if you can do any more pay-per-views. They're already set on the calendar. I think the logistics of that fight, given the COVID-19 situation, kind of handcuffed that situ- uh, that whole uh, ability to make that fight. Also, I've heard different things about um, if he is still aligned with the PBC or not. I've heard that he is, that he might have one more fight left. Other people tell me that he's free and clear. Uh, I don't, don't know. But but to be fair, Schwan, maybe the, the flip side is maybe the Errol Spence people say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Given what you've just been through, maybe we don't want that fight just yet. Well, if that if that was the case, if I was Manny's people, I'm making sure I, that leaks. I make sure that leaks yes. out. But um, we want to thank you yes. for your time, Steve. I didn't, I didn't want to take up all your whole time. Thank you very much for, for doing the show. And um, before, I know you're going to see Mario or you speak to Mario very soon. Tell him, I know he can box, but when, when Zach Morris hit him with that right hand, he started wrestling. He started clinching. He needs to explain, <laughs> he needs to explain himself. Why did, why did Preppy hit him with that right hand? Thing. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I saw it. All of us saw it. I saw Saved by the Bell. Zach Morris had him on skates. He was holding like Floyd against Shane Mosley. I need an explanation. <laughs> I'll ask him absolutely. And uh, thank you. If you could tell our fans, because we we have fans and we have a lot of people who will be checking into the show. Uh, uh, where can they find your content, your work, your uh, your show, your podcast? Um, you know, this is a chance to to sell yourself even more. Yeah, my, my regular gigs at ESPN.com. I, I write about boxing, um, and um, I write several times a week, depending on the news that comes up and the events. Also, uh, in terms of Twitter. Uh, I do have an account, and I, I tweet an awful lot, maybe too much for some people's taste, but I'm at Steve. Uh, it's S-T-E-V-E-S-P-N, Kim. And you got to see a verified blue check because that, that's the real one. And then also in terms of the podcast that I do with the aforementioned Mario Lopez, it's called the Three Knockdown Rule, the number three knockdown rule uh, once a week, depending on Mario's schedule. We talk about the sweet science, pop culture, anything else that's on our mind. It's about uh, 40 minutes to about an hour, and we try to ed- educate and entertain. 
And um, I think it's a pretty good podcast. I think, think we do a pretty good job there. That's basically what I do for now. And um, and it was great joining you guys. I really enjoyed this hey, hour. I want to thank you. And first of all, anybody on Twitter, Steve is the most approachable writer of any combat sport, maybe any sport. You want to contact him. You want to have an idea. You, you want to have an intelligent discussion about boxing or business of boxing. This man will take time out to engage any and all people except the fools. He does not. He does not tolerate fools. Just, so. Yeah, I, I'm in, I'm engageable till I block you. <laughs> so don't, don't get blocked. <laughs> exactly. I, I want to tell you thank you for all you've done for boxing. I really feel like you've helped elevate the sport and present it as a real, actual sport because the way you covered it. A lot of guys cover combat sports like it's their like it's a hobby. And for the sport to be taken seriously and get the opportunities and, and the correct coverage, it needs to be covered like a professional sport. You've always done the sport justice. I consider you, I consider you not the Floyd Mayweather, because I know you and him have beef. Consider you the, the Sugar Ray, the Sugar Ray Robinson, Sugar Ray Leonard of oh boxing God. journalism. I consider you a great friend. You have been nothing but kind to me and nothing but supportive about any any comment I made or any time I've had a question or any time when I, I reached out for you to do the show, you got back to me. ASAP, and I, I respect you immensely for that. I thank you for your friendship, for all your hard work, and anybody who loves boxing or combat sports, who wants a better understanding of it, contact this man. If you can't reach him, come to me. I'm the second best out there. But uh, <laughs> thank you for everything. It's been a wonderful episode. I'm sure Raphael would agree, and um, I just appreciate it greatly, man. You are no, absolutely, wonderful. guys. Let's, do, let's make this something regular, and you guys enjoy the rest of your weekend. Man. I really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Fantastic. Thanks.